Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. My name is John Mickles, lead pastor here at CCC, and want to welcome you. Thanks for spending some of your summer weekend with us today. I don't know about you, but I like surprises. I like things that change, things that are new, things that are different. Uh, surprises don't usually happen to me a lot because I don't know if it's I'm nosy or I pay attention to a lot of little details. So it can be a little tricky and a little challenging to surprise me. But I do enjoy those. Uh, anytime I have a surprise, something I wasn't expecting, it's most of the time something that's very meaningful and impactful for me. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, does not like surprises at all, and um, I didn't know and understand this. And so shortly after we were married, uh, she had happened upon one of those decade birthdays, and, and I did for her what I wanted someone to do to me. That's what a good husband does, right? You do for your wife what you, what you think should be done to you. And um, no, it really doesn't work that way. Forget I just said that. You know, that never works well. But... Um, so I decided, since I would love a surprise party, why don't I throw a surprise party for her? Did I tell you she doesn't like surprises? So um, needless to say, it didn't go well, and she hasn't had one since, and life has gone much better. But uh, today we're going to talk about surprises, and we're going to talk about endings, and we're going to talk about what to anticipate and what to look forward to. And if you're someone that doesn't like being caught off guard, likes to know what's coming, you will really enjoy some components of the message that I'm going to share with you today. If you haven't been here with us throughout the summer, our message series has been titled This I Believe, and we've been looking at an ancient document called the Apostles' Creed, and uh, many of you may have grown up in a church where you said the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis in your church setting. It was a document that was created over 1,600 years ago by a group of religious scholars who sat down together and said, how can we create bullet points of the key elements that we believe in? And so we've been looking at those over the last several weeks. We've been looking at the reality that God encourages Christ's followers to wrestle with their doubts because we believe faith and the things that you hold on to come out of your doubts. And so we believe God wants to wrestle with you to wrestle with those things, and we want to walk with you in that. We've seen God being incredibly and infinitely powerful and then intimately personal. We've seen Jesus coming from riches, all of God's glory, to rags on the earth, coming to this earth and being willing to suffer and die on our behalf. We've watched, um, we've looked at the foundation of our faith, which is not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not David, it's not even the teachings of Jesus, but the foundation of our faith, the thing that's at the bottom, that you can't kick that out or everything collapses, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we looked at last week. So would you join me and just read through the first sections of the creed that we've gone through so far. Let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this morning, we're going to dive into the next phrase of the creed. And the next phrase of the creed says, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And today, we're going to talk about a major tension that people have with faith. Maybe a major tension that you have with faith. You may be sitting here this morning and maybe you've been in church and, and maybe faith isn't new to you, but this is something you've wrestled with, this whole idea of judgment. And maybe you're trying to figure out how to make your faith your own or you're coming back to explore faith and this piece of judgment just doesn't sit well with you. And I hope this morning that you will listen to what I have to say and that you will reserve judgment 
until I'm finished and consider all that not only I have to say, but what God has to say about this subject. So what does the word judge mean? Well, the word judge simply means to pass a sentence on a person based upon evidence. That's what judgment is. Judgment is earned. It's not an arbitrary decision. Judgment is based upon the standard for that is what we would call the rule of law. But we have this prevailing view in our culture that we cannot impose our moral views on anybody else, our moral beliefs of what is right and wrong on another person, because everyone has a right to find out their own truth, which they find out based on what's inside of them. And so society says that your moral standards are personal. You decide. They're not communal or universal. And so a question for us to start off this morning is this question, are moral standards personal or universal? Are moral standards personal or universal? Let me ask you this question. Are there people in the world doing things right now that are wrong and they should stop regardless of their personal morals? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. We do believe that there's a moral standard that we should abide by regardless of what our own personal standards are. This idea of concept and judgment is found all throughout the Bible. And this idea comes more clearly in focus for us when we face a crisis, when there's a tragedy. December 4th, 2012, 26 individuals died, 20 of them children at the Sandy Hook elementary school. And we would call what took place that day pure evil. President Obama at the time said this, no single law, no, no single law, no set of laws can eliminate evil from the world or prevent any seamless act of violence in our society. One little girl who didn't go home that day was a girl by the name of Emily. And her mom, Alyssa Parker, said this, we received a box from the police of Emily's clothing she was wearing that day. I had to see how she was hurt, and the pain is indescribable. I felt so consumed with how evil could be so powerful, and that evil won. So if we ask this question, are morals of knowing what is right and wrong personal or universal? You see, if they're personal, if I decide them, how can I call this horrific act evil? What we have to conclude is that there's some universal right and wrong that exists beyond ourselves. You say, well, how do we know that's true? How do we know that's true? Because it can, be, it can occur to us in something as small as having your, your wallet or your purse stolen, or something egregious as you being assaulted, when you cry out and say, there must be what? Justice justice. Society says it's wrong when we encounter evil and we cry out for justice. And the question is, what will a good God do when confronted with evil? What will a good God do when confronted with evil? Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. The truth is that none of us can escape judgment. None of us can escape death. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There's two main judgments talked about in the Bible. There's a judgment for those who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus. There's a judgment for those who do not follow Jesus, who do not be believe 
in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, uh, what is due us for the things done while we're in the body here, whether good or bad. So we're all going to face that. We're all going to experience this. It's something that happens to every single person alive. Let's look first at the judgment for those who believe. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to start off this morning. It's page 925 in the Bibles there in your seat, or you can follow along in your tablet or phone. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Corinthians is a letter written to the people of Corinth, church in that city, by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this letter to them to give them directions about how to live. Before we jump into this, if you're a guest this morning, you may be wondering, oh no, I walked into one of those churches, you know that talks about this stuff all the time. Well, if you listen to us online, which I'm sure you did before you came, you know that's not what we talk about every week. But what we do try to talk about are the things that God talks about and the things that we wrestle with in life and in our culture. And so that's why we're diving into this subject this morning. And as I mentioned earlier, I encourage you, if possible, to withhold your judgment until the end. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. What does Paul say? He says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it, but each of you should build with care. So Paul's kind of using this metaphor of building a house to building your life. And he says when you build a house, the first thing you start with is what part of the house? Say it. What do you start with? Foundation, right? Yeah, exactly. And then he says, someone else is putting some stuff. They're all, you got different subcontractors are all working to build the house. He says, it's so true with us. He said, you lay a foundation in your life, and then you build things on that. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, he said, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul basically is saying here that for him, the center of his life, the foundation part for his life, what he's going to build his life on is a relationship with Jesus. He did this by trusting in Jesus. And he says, once you give your life to Jesus, then he becomes the foundation. He directs your choices. He directs your decision. He guides your life. Your eternity is not based upon your works or anything you do. It's based solely on Jesus. He then goes on to talk about building. He said, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. And Paul's talking about different grades of building materials. Now, if you go to work on a project in your home or in your yard, you will go to Home Depot and Lowe's and you will find various levels of quality of material. One of the things you'll come across is seed level material. And if you find seed level material, you know that if you use this seed level material, maybe you don't have a lot of extra money and it's all you can afford, you're like, ah, I really wish I could do this a little better, but this is all I got. And you know in a few years you're going to be what? Doing it again. But maybe you've got a little bit of extra and you're like, I want this to last at least as long as I live here and I don't want to have to redo it, so I'm going to put the B quality material so it's a little bit better. And uh, if you're a little anal, then you spend all the extra money on the A, but most of us don't do that, you know. Um, or you're spending money for your company and he, the boss and you always buy A, right? That's what happens, right? Somebody else is paying for it, you always buy A quality. But Paul's talking about different grades of materials, right? He's talking about gold, silver, costly stones, the stuff that's going to last, that's going to endure, that's going to live past the weather and the storms and the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the heat, and it's going to live past everything. But this other stuff, wood, hay, and straw, that stuff, that's going to get burned up, it's going to get rotted away, 
It's going to this up here. And so he says, what are you building on your foundation with? What are you building on your foundation with? And he tells us why what you're building on your foundation with matters in the next verse. He said, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. So there's this thing called the day. It's going to reveal what you're building your life with. And it will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each person's work. Basically what he says is there's this day coming where God's going to put a torch to everything in your life and you're going to find out whether it mattered or not. That's what he's going to do. And you're going to find out the stuff that you spent maybe a lot of time with that you thought was A quality, but it's just going to burn up. You're like, wow, that really wasn't worth anything. And you're going to find out, man, these things that I didn't think that was that big of a deal, you're like, wow, that really mattered. We all have different values, don't we? Don't we? You know, and, and as a parent, you have value things that are different than your kids, right? And, and, you know, sometimes as parents, we have something we'll like say to our kids, hey, you know, this was from your grandparents or your great-grandparents, and we want to pass this thing along to them. They're like, what is it? I don't really care about that, you know? They have no sense of the value. I was talking to a lady in our church just recently, and she was telling me about uh, her husband did some work in um, Ancestry.com, found out that he had some ancestors from Germany. One of the ancestors was a clockmaker, had a two U.S. patents on a certain clock. He researched this patent. He found these clocks at auctions around the country, bought one for each of his kids. His two sons were thrilled, and his daughter said, how much? Can I have the money? You know, she didn't really care about the clock. It didn't really matter to her. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, you're building stuff on this thing called your life. And there's going to come a day when you're going to re get revealed whether it mattered or not. Whether it mattered. He then goes on to say, the next verse, he says, if it's been built, if it survives, the builder gets a reward. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. If what you've built survives, you get a reward. Um, I don't know if anybody's told you that if you're a Christ follower and you build things in your life that last, there's going to be a benefit to this. And then goes on to say, but if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss. He'll still be saved. He'll still be with Jesus forever, even though it'll be like he got in with one foot pulling it through the door and the door closing behind him, you know, escape through the flames. And so this first judgment that Paul's talking about is not a judgment to determine whether anyone enters into, God, enters into heaven, whether anyone spends eternity with Jesus. That's already taken care of. That's already secured. That's already decided because they chose Jesus as their foundation. This judgment is one in which Paul is saying, what is your life going to be like? What's it going to be like for eternity? And what are you pouring into right now? Maybe I should quantify that. Who are you pouring into right now? Ask yourself that question. Who am I pouring into their life right now? Adults, who are you pouring into right now? Moms and dads, who are you pouring into? Grandparents, who are you pouring into? Students, who are you pouring into? Like, I can't point out. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you guys serve in Mogoland and the studio in 56. Those kids think you can walk on water because you're bigger than them. You know, you can have an impact 
in someone's life, even at that place in your journey. And so Paul's challenging us and he's helping us to see that there's going to come a day for everyone who's a Christ follower, for all those who are Christ followers, where we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to look at everything that we did and he's going to take that torch. I can just kind of envision, you know, you got the propane tank here and you got the long arm and you got the torch and you turn that thing on, whoosh, you know, light it up and just, you know, and you're like, all the stuff that matters, that, there it is. This is what matters. This is what matters. This is what survives. And um, it's not a day when someone's shaking their finger at you and say, you shoulda, coulda, woulda. But I hope for me, and I hope for you, it's a day in which I get to celebrate the one who rescued me. I get to celebrate the one who invested in me. I get to celebrate the one who sacrificed his life for me. That's Jesus, the one who cheered me on. And I get to stand before him and hear him say, you did a great job. Well done. Well done. You've been faithful with these little opportunities that I gave you to invest in, to build into whoever it was that came to your life, even if it was just for a moment, even if it was just for an hour, even if it was just for a weekend or a month or a year or a lifetime. And you know what? You get this amazing reward for all of eternity. You know, for some of you that serve, you may wonder, why, why do I serve? Why, why do I give? Why do I bother? Is it really worth it? It's a little bit like a first-time mom who's about to give birth for the first time, and she's a little nervous going into the delivery room, and she interacts maybe with a couple family members, some close friends who've had children. She's like, I'm scared. I'm nervous. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? You may say... It'll be hard, it won't be easy, but it's worth it beyond what you can imagine. And one day, every Christ follower will stand before Jesus and the sacrifices you have made, your decisions to not only make a decision to make Him the foundation of your life, but to build on top of that with things that are going to matter will far outweigh all the work and effort that we put into it. So the first judgment is for those that have chosen Jesus. The second judgment is much harder to talk about, and it feels like the elephant in the room. And if you talk about this judgment in a lot of settings in our culture today, you get a lot of pushback, a ton of criticism. Because for some who hear that God judges people and rejects them and condemns them to eternity away from Him, it seems highly offensive. But in some parts of our world, not so much. You say, why not, John? Why not? Because the closer you are to injustice, the easier it is to see the beauty and the rightness of God's justice. Let me say that again. The closer you are to injustice, the easier it is to see the beauty and the rightness of God's justice. And the further you away from injustice, the more offended you are by justice. Miroslav Voif said this, My last resistance to God's judgment was a casualty of war from the former Yugoslavia, the region that I'm from. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million people were displaced. My villages and homes were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some were brutalized beyond imagination. I could not imagine God not being angry. Or take Rwanda, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. 
How does God not react to that car? How does God react to that carnage? Like a doting grandfather saying, oh, it's okay. You really didn't mean it. It's going to be all right. No, I hope God acts like a righteous judge and brings judgment on those perpetrators. Miroslav says this, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I have to have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because of his love. You see, when we talk about judgment, we talk about Jesus coming to right the wrongs. We talk about Jesus coming to clean up the mess. We talk about Jesus dealing with the injustice in this world that no matter how hard you've tried, how much you fought, how much you prayed, it's not gotten any better. And he finally comes and says, no more. No more. So how does God do that? If you turn to the very last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, this is how he does that. It says, I saw a great white throne and on him and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is called the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. It's the end of the world, the fate of every person who's not a follower of Jesus, whether dead or alive, is revealed. And there's this book open called the Book of Life, and it records my whole life. Let me ask you this question. What place has, what place has all the books? What's it called? Library, right? Library. Library. So I want you to imagine that you're in a dream, and as you wake up in this dream, you realize that you're in this library. And as you're in this library, you go and pull a book off, and it's got your name on the binder. And you're like, that's weird. It's got my name on the binder. So you pull this book off, and you open the book up to the first page. And as you turn to the first page, you realize it has the details of the first lie you ever told, who you told it to, and what happened, and all the events surrounding. You're like, I forgot about that. I did that. Turn to the next page. And there's the next lie you told in great detail, all documented, and you're like, man, another one. And you're like, there's a whole book full of these. You slam the book shut, you put it back, and you're like, I don't want to read that book anymore. And you pull out another book, and you you open this book, and it's got your name on the binder again. And this book is all about the first time that you gossiped about a classmate to another friend. And then you turn the page, it's when you you gossiped about one of your siblings. Turn another, oh, that was an ex-boyfriend or girl, you gossiped. And you slam that book shut, and what you realize is that every book you open had a detailed record of every single thing you have done, every thought, every word, every action. Nothing has been forgotten, and everything has been recorded. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 36, when I says, I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. There's books. And then there's one book, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to that book. He goes on to say in verse 15, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Sobering words, hard words to think about, to accept, and believe. Francis Chan said this, 
If my two-year-old runs in the street, is it unloving to warn him of destruction um, that, is, that is coming in the form of a Chevy 4x4? Does anyone criticize a fireman for waking up a family to rescue them from a burning building? Uh, does anyone blame a doctor for not telling a person who has cancer that they must get it treated if they're going to live? No, the most loving thing you could do is warn someone who's facing judgment without any hope that there's a rescue opportunity. There's a way to be delivered. There's a way to be free. And the question is, why in some judgments do people get rewards and why in some judgment are people separated and eternal damnation away from God. It comes down to one thing, and that's the book of life. So how does a person get into the book of life? Well, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul, as he writes, says this, he says, when you were dead in your sins, when you were dead in sins, when you were not following Jesus, there was volume after volume after volume. Every single one of us has a library. Every single one of us has a rap sheet so long I'm like, what do I do about it? What do I do about it? Imagine a guy who is guilty of first-degree murder. The evidence has been presented. He's been found guilty. The judge is about to sentence him. He's standing there. He says, please stand to your feet, sir. He stands there with his attorney. And the judge says, just a moment, goes back into his chamber, takes a recess. He then comes back out and says, sir... The charges have been dropped. You're free to go. You're a free man. And you're like, what happened? Who paid off the judge? You're outraged at the injustice that has occurred. But what did Jesus do when he forgave us of all of our sins? He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it all away. And he nailed it to the cross. He took the outpouring of the sin of all of mankind on the cross for himself, and he disarmed the power and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over evil. By how? By the cross. It was all dismissed on that day because of Jesus. Back to your dream. As you're walking through the library and you're opening the books and you're slamming them shut, opening them, slamming them shut, opening them, slamming them shut, say, I can't, yeah, I know, I, I know, I, I, it's true, I know it was, but I can't, who would, why, how, how, how did this all happen? And suddenly you hear sirens come in the distance, and as they get closer, you hear some police chatter, and you hear your name picked up, and you're like, they're coming after me. You take off running through the library, and you run to the back of the library, and you're trying to find a way out, and you see a door, and there's a door that opens quickly, and someone comes out of the door, um, puts something in your hand, shoves, the, shoves you into this room, and slams the door shut. And at that moment, you hear the police coming down there. You hear them coming down the library. You hear a scuffle break out outside with the individual, and then a shot goes off, and then silence. And you open your hand and look at what's in your hand, and there's a key and on that key, it says, Jesus Christ. And you look up and see a door in front of you. And you put that key in and open that door. And it's another library. And you open that book. And this book talks about something you've done to impact a person's life. And you had no idea you made a difference. You had no idea. 
It made a difference. What just happened? Someone traded places with you. Someone took your judgment for you. Someone gave up their life for you. Someone traded their perfect life for your sinful life. Someone went into the courtroom of heaven and stood before the judge of all mankind and said, even though he's sinful and I'm perfect, I'm going to trade so that he doesn't have a library of his sin to be held against him ever, ever, ever again for all of eternity. And he now offers this life to you. And the choice is yours. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? There's three things I want to invite you to do today. The first is I want to invite you to reflect. Reflect. Reflect on the fact that maybe for you, today is a day of salvation. Maybe for you, today is the day where you believe these things we've been talking about each week. You believe that Jesus came from God. You believe that He came to this earth and He lived and He died and offered His life to pay for your sins. You've heard it when you were a little kid. You've been coming to church for years, but you've never made it personal. And you're outside that door of that library and someone opens that door and he says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm knocking at the door. Are you going to invite me in? And in just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and invite you to pray it with me of surrender, where he will forgive your sins and he will trade his life for yours. For some of you, I want you to spend some time in consolation because some of you have experienced an injustice that has never been righted. Maybe for some of you, the person that wronged you is dead. And in this life, they could never right that. I want to challenge you to accept God is a just judge. Accept that He's going to sort it out. That He's going to right the wrong. That justice will be served. You say, John, why is that important? Why do I have to even think about it? I don't want to think about this. I just want to put it in my past and just try to move on. And I hate to tell you, you're not going to be able to. It will haunt you. You say, Why? Because what God wants you to do is He wants you to take a step of forgiveness for that person that has wounded you deeply. You say, but John, I don't want anything to do with them. I can't ever, I'm, I'm not asking to reconcile with them. That takes two people. I'm asking to forgive and that takes one. And the only reason I'm asking you to do that is because you've been forgiven. The only reason. The only reason. And so, would you consider taking a first step towards forgiveness? Last thing I want you to do is I, I want you to hopefully be motivated. Be motivated that God has given you a message that could change someone's life. In Jude, the book right before the book of Revelation, Jude writes this, Be merciful to those who doubt. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Save others by snatching them from the fire. There's somebody in your life who doesn't know Jesus. There's somebody in your life who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. I want to challenge you today, I want to challenge you this week to pray and say, God, give me an opportunity, give me the courage, give me the boldness to say, can I talk to you about something that's changed my life and just ask you to consider it. You're not forcing it on them. You're not strong-arming them. You're not shoving it. That's not what I'm they're, they're on their throat. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about with the grace and compassion and 
kindness that God offers to us, that you would offer that to someone else. And say, can I share with you something that's changed my life forever? Would you bow your heads with me as we close this morning? God, you know those who are right now, this moment, trying to decide if they're going to open that door and welcome you in, if they're going to choose Jesus. And I pray that right now, in this moment, you would give them the courage, you would give them the clarity, and you would give them the faith to believe that you offer life at its absolute very best in this life and in the life to come. And may they just quietly say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that you died for me. I recognize that I could never earn my way into heaven. I had to accept what you did on the cross to pay for my sins. And that you rose again. And you're offering life to me today. God, thank you for the amazing gift of salvation and the hope and life that it brings to each of us. In your name we pray. Amen.